Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with the man, the myth, the legend himself, Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm good, Conrad. Before we get going into the show, uh, you know, I know a lot of people are looking forward to this, and I just want to go on record saying this, that I, I thought you did an amazing job promoting Starcast this, this weekend. The event was flawless. I really, I had the time of my life, and, you know, to be able to, to just, you know, see you operating and, and learn from you and, 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 and your lovely wife, Megan, I mean, it was so much fun hanging out with you and your friends, you know, Saturday night after the show and enjoying the, you know, the Alabama LSU football game together. I, I just, I can't say enough good things about you today. I, I, I really can't. You're an amazing individual, you know, one of my best friends ever in the world. There's just, you know, man, you, you are my hero. No, I'm just hoping you're not going to kick my ass too bad for the rest of the show. <laughs> it's not going to change anything. <laughs> Clash of the Champions 29, November 16th, 1994. I can't believe this was 25 years ago. Jacksonville, Florida is the home of this show and the home of AEW. Uh, before we talk about the show, we are recapping a big weekend in Baltimore. I do sincerely thank you for coming along. You know, obviously when, when I started to put together StarCast 4, I never imagined I'd be able to get Eric Bischoff and suddenly you were available. So I was thankful you were able to make the shot and you got to catch up with some of your old friends and, uh, have dinner with the great Muna. So you had an interesting weekend. Fair to say. I did. You know, we had, uh, had a great dinner Thursday night, myself and uh, Muda and Muda's wife and Sonny Ono, who, by the way, I don't know if people are aware of this or not. I, I guess it got a little bit of publicity, but about two weeks ago, Sonny had a heart attack on his way home from Japan and ended up in the hospital uh, and had a, a stent put in one of his valves. And he's going in for, I think, a, a double bypass here in another couple of weeks. So, <clears throat> you know, Sonny's one tough dude, man. He, he sucked it up threw a bottle of nitroglycerin in his pocket and gave the sarcast for he wouldn't have missed it so uh yeah it was fun being able to connect with sonny and muda and with his wife we had a, a wonderful dinner and, and again you know i got to see uh steve uh sting i'm sorry uh again and that's always fun uh jim crockett the very first ironically it was the very first time i ever met jim crockett so that was uh that was that was really cool. David Crockett, of course, was there, and you know I always love seeing David. He's a, he's a great guy. So yeah, it was kind of you know it's always fun going to these events. You know you meet the fans, and I I don't know I just had a blast Saturday. You know signing an autograph and signing autographs and meeting the fans. I I don't think I've laughed that hard in a long time. So it, the whole weekend was a blast. The two things that I think uh, were coolest over the weekend from an Eric Bischoff perspective, one. I didn't realize that you had never met Jim Crockett. And when you first got to Jimmy's famous seafood on Thursday, when we were doing Tony Schiavone's birthday party, you and I were at a separate bar away from the festivities. And I just casually asked, cause I wasn't sure if the timeline would have ever made sense. Hey, did you ever meet Jim Crockett? And you said, no. And I said, well, he's in the other room and I've got to get you guys together just so I can snap a picture of the first time you met him. And I think he thought, well, man, that's kind of cool that he's here, but I really did get the picture posted it online and man, people were talking about it everywhere because when you think about not Vince McMahon, but the other side of the fence, you think about two guys, you think about Jim Crockett and you think about Eric Bischoff and the idea that you guys finally got to meet, I thought it was pretty damn cool. 
and then I think a lot of people were really surprised on Saturday when uh, Derek lined up a media scrum of sorts, uh, that you handled the whole WWE thing really in the first public appearance since in the most classy tactful way ever. And I think a lot of people were really surprised with what good spirits you were in. I mean, even Thursday night, when we're doing a little bit of a low key roast of Tony Schiavone, everyone's going up there and just sort of trashing everybody. And then you unannounced do a run in and say, I just want to announce I'm only here for the catering and stuff away. <laughs> people loved it, man. You're, you're in such good spirits about this. And I don't know. I think a lot of people were shocked that Eric Bischoff was as jovial as he was this weekend. Well, you know, and I don't, I guess I know why, you know, the nature of this industry, I think is, I don't say the nature of the industry. I think the people have a certain expectation that in a situation like this, you know, me being let go from WWE, that I, I'm, I'm going to come out, I'm going to do my shoot promo. And I, I think more than anything, that's probably why people's expectations are to hear the negative side of everything, because this business for so long has been, you know, so much of it, at least away from the television product and away from the live event product, is all about people shooting on each other. And a lot of people have made a lot of money with that kind of format. And it's a way for people to kind of keep themselves out there in the public eye by coming out and saying things, you know, in situations like this that, you know, are, are negative or, you know, accuse people of things. And it's just the, the nature of a shoot interview. And I, I, I mean, I just don't have anything bad to say, you know, and, and uh, I, I don't want to, you know, repeat myself from what we talked about in the media scrum, but it's like, you know what? It was a great opportunity. I'm glad I did it. You know, wish it would have worked out different, but no hard feelings. I mean, I'm pretty positive about the whole thing. And I think people are just surprised more than anything. It's like, well, wait a minute. Isn't he going to like trash somebody? Is he going to, you know, blame somebody else for it? Is he going to make fun of certain things? It's like, no, (laughs) why would I do that? Uh, you know, so yeah, it was fine. I I had a blast. So uh, Thursday night at the roast. I mean, gosh, that was. I've never laughed so hard. And that video. Who put that video together? Tony's life story. Who did that? Chris McDonald, who is uh, behind the scenes, the guy who is really Mr. Starcast. He puts together our website, all of our graphics, all of our promotional videos. He's one of the most talented people in wrestling, but he's Canadian, so he'll never get the credit he really deserves. Nor, nor should he because he's Canadian. However, he did a fantastic job. I mean, I laughed. I, 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 you know, I was standing up at the bar by myself. I was with Medusa for a portion of the time, but for the mo- most part, I was kind of by myself off to the corner and I was watching that video and I was just, I had tears in my eyes. I mean, it was so much, it was so funny. I was laughing so hard and he did a great job. The whole thing came off great. You know, Mark Madden did a great job and uh, I mean, he's, you know, the great thing about Mark Madden doing a roast is that's the way he is 100% of the time. He's always tearing somebody a new ass. You know what I mean? He's never not roasting somebody. So it was uh, – the whole thing was a, was a blast. And Thursday night definitely set the tone. Seeing Lois – I hadn't laid eyes on Lois in 20-some-odd years. In fact, right before she came out, my son had called me, and it was noisy in the room. So I went into a back room area to take the call. And Lois is is standing there, and she looks at me, and um, I'm, she, she says, "You don't even recognize me, do you?" 
and I didn't recognize her. But I recognized her voice as soon as she started yelling at me. <laughs> oh, Lewis, how the hell are you? <laughs> yeah, it, when you've been yelled at by Lewis Shivani, he won't forget it anytime soon. Oh, no, that's like getting punched in the head by Vader. I mean, you just, you, you remember that one. So without any further ado, let's talk about it, man. Clash of the Champions 29, November 16th, 1994. It gets a 3.6 rating, which is a 5.4 share. That's roughly 2.2 million homes. And the prior year's clash back in 1993 only drew a 3.3 rating. And that was for the first Vader flare match, which we're covering this week with Tony Schiavone on what happened when. So if you want to check that out, by all means, check it out this Wednesday right here on Westwood one, but this show here in 94 clash 29 has 4,000 fans in attendance here in Jacksonville. About 3,200 of those were paying customers. The gate is only $38,000. And Meltzer would note that the weather was very bad in Jacksonville that day, and that could have held those numbers down somewhat. I guess I'll give everybody a peek behind the curtain. This past week, you asked me, hey, man, how are we looking in Baltimore? And I said, well, we're down a little bit from where we were in Chicago. And you said, well, Baltimore's a walk-up town. And it just made me double over laughing because it sounded like the most prototype prototypical wrestling response to a downhouse ever. And then you clarified, no, no, a lot of these socio socioeconomically challenged markets are more of a walk-up market because if they don't have, if they're not just flush with cash, they need that money to, you know, pay bills or buy groceries or whatever. So they'll, they'll spend that money at the very last minute. And that made total sense to me. Is Jacksonville another one of those style markets? And do you think that the weather in this particular case could have affected the walkout? No, I, I don't think I, I wouldn't consider Jacksonville, uh, the type of market that I would put in the same kind of category as, you know, a St. Louis or Baltimore or, or Chicago in some respects. Um, the weather, you know, may have had, uh, you know, an impact. It's hard to say, you know, Florida's not. They're kind of used to bad weather, hurricanes, and all that kind of thing. I can't remember the name of the hurricane that was coming through there at this time, but it it was a bit of an issue. But Florida's kind of used to it. And just you know, Jacksonville's just not a big market. You know, it's it's or at least it wasn't back then. It it's a nice little town, nice little you know venue to run wrestling in, but uh, not not a Chicago or Detroit or certainly not a Las Vegas or Atlanta. So it, you know, I think the numbers again, going back 20 some odd years, however long ago it was, you know, the fact that we were able to draw 3,200 people again, keep in mind, WCW was just, it sucked from, from a live event point of view. And after looking at this, <laughs> this clash of the champions, it sucked all the way around, but we weren't drawing, you know, any kind of real numbers and actually 3,200 paid is a pretty surprising number to hear that based on, you know, typically what we were doing back then. One of the interesting things, um, I guess we should mention here is we're just a few weeks removed from Halloween having 94. And you may remember there was a bit of a, uh, an interesting main event. It's Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair in a steel cage. The WCW broke every record and set new records back in July at Bash at the Beach. And it was with Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair on top on a pay-per-view for the first time ever. So they go back to the well in October and this time they put them in a cage, but that's not enough. They also make it a retirement match. 
So Flair's putting his career on the line against Hulk Hogan's world title. Of course, Hogan retains. Havoc does 220,000 pay-per-view buys. And so as a result, Ric Flair is now retired. And now we're covering this show just a few weeks later. We should mention that Mark Madden, who we talked about as being a part of StarCast, has a, uh, a segment on the WCW hotline every week. And for his segment this week, or on the way to this show, rather, he interviews Ric Flair. And Flair on the hotline would say, I'll never be sure this is a fitting cap to my career. I'm not sure my career was illustrious. I feel like I've enjoyed tremendous success. I've been an 11-time heavyweight champion, and that's a landmark a lot of people will point to, but I lost. I made the mistake of a lifetime putting my career on the line. But as you witnessed, it was a tremendous show, a tremendous wrestling match. I don't begrudge WCW or Hulk Hogan to say it was a climax to a great career. I can't answer that question, but it was the end and I haven't had any sad thoughts about it. And you know, he's trying to keep the storyline going. Of course we know behind the scenes, you've signed him to a new contract. What was the the thinking when, Hey, we're going to put him on the shelf for a little bit. Then he'll come back later. Did you already have all that mapped out or was it just a We'll circle back around to this, but we just feel like we need to have bigger stakes for that match. No, we needed to have bigger stakes. And, you know, we felt like, or I'll speak for myself. I felt like um, I wanted to take advantage of the absence, absence makes the heart grow fonder factor with Rick. Rick was such a beloved character in WCW and he was such a, you know, for, for many, many years, he was the face of WCW and the face of NWA, which is, you know, where WCW originated from. So I thought the idea of him retiring and then making a comeback at a certain point, he would, we would have more equity in Ric Flair coming out of retirement and getting back into the ring than we had going into that match. So, I mean, that was the logic. I've always, I, I believe that. And I think I'm right about that. You know, oftentimes I've had these thoughts that I've firmly believed in. And after, you know, a couple of years or even reflecting on it, you know, now I realize that I was wrong. But I think one of the things that I've been right about consistently from the very beginning was a beginning of my management career in, in wrestling was that you have to cycle talent in and out. It's really hard to keep a top talent in a top position for extended periods of time. It just gets old. You run out of great ideas. You run out of great stakes. You, 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 you use up a lot of great story and matchups that really matter. Um, when you have someone like Ric Flair or Hulk Hogan or Sting um, or Randy Savage, you've got to be careful who you match them up with. Uh, and and be certain that if you're going to, for example, with a with a guy like Ric Flair, you're going to put him in a match with somebody who is going to be elevated because he's in a match with Ric Flair, as opposed to the opposite happening, where someone like Ric Flair is being diminished because he's in a match with a certain individual that just doesn't have the 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 the, the equity or the name value. So, because it's so difficult to keep a top talent in a top position 365 days a year, I've always liked the idea and, and have been proven right more often than not that letting someone go away, 
even taking advantage of an injury as unfortunate as injuries are in the industry. And, you know, sometimes they're devastating when they're very serious, but otherwise if they're nagging injuries or injuries that aren't really too serious, that's going to keep anybody out for extended periods of time. Um, sometimes an injury can be a talent's best friend is, is twisted as that sounds on the surface. Because when you, if you get hurt and and you do have to take two months off or three months off, by the time you're ready to come back, the audience is ready for you to come back, and they're more excited about you coming back than they were about you when you left. So, you know, long-winded way of, of saying that you know the Rick Rick Flair retirement angle story served two purposes. It put a tremendous amount of stakes on the pay-per-view in October, as you pointed out, but it also provided an opportunity for Ric Flair to kind of step away and take advantage of the absence that makes the heart grow fonder factor that I've just described. So the other thing that Rick says, uh, in another interview, um, I agreed, and I don't think the company's going to need Ric Flair again. Wrestling is bigger than Ric Flair. Unlike a lot of people in this business, I'm the first to admit that wrestling is bigger than I am. I've been an intricate part of the last 20 years, the last 10 years, probably more than just a part. I'm enjoying my new position at the company. I feel like TBS is progressive. Ted Turner goes on record day in and day out saying that we've got deep pockets here. And sometimes that's what it takes to offset the balance. I'm committed. The company's committed. And we've got a great leader in Eric Bischoff. Who's very contemporary thinking, aggressive, young corporate guy. I think with Eric leading the way we can go big places and we can go big places fast. We've got the money behind us to make it happen. How, um, how this is obviously on the hotline and, and, and sort of quote unquote smart situations. How out front. Were you guys planning to take this Ric Flair while he did retire from the in-ring product? He's still working here behind the scenes. How far did you initially plan on pushing that? All the way. I, I, I mean, I'm not, if I understand your, your question, uh, going back, we, uh, we knew that Ric Flair was going to get back into the ring at some point. Um, and I guess I'm not clear on what you well, mean by how far we were going to push well, it. Like for instance, you know, years later, it feels like a lifetime later. Rick would be the on-air president of WCW. Had you imagined there would be some sort of like commissioner role for Ric Flair, and maybe that would be the way you would slide him back into in-ring competition? Uh, I, you know, I don't think we got that far out, you know, thinking-wise. We knew that he was going to get back into the ring at some point, but I don't think the architecture was in place storyline-wise for exactly how we were going to do it. We knew we were. We just didn't. You know, I don't think we had a clear idea of how we just knew we were. Let's talk about Hulk Hogan for a minute. Meltzer in this era would report Hogan is not signed past December 28th, 1994. It's believed he's negotiating for full on paper control of the company in order to stay, but almost surely will settle for nothing less than the way of the power he already has, which is to mean full control of scenarios involving himself. John Tenta and Leslie, Jim Duggan and hockey talk man, and being a member of the new booking committee that reorganized this past weekend, which now consists of flair himself, Jimmy Hart, Eric Bischoff, Kevin Sullivan, and Mike Graham, Greg Gagne and Bill Dundee were both let go. Is Hogan worth the money spent on his contract and money spent to build everything around him. If they let Hogan go, does WCW deflate like a balloon with the air let out after all the PR work and TV hype built around him? particularly if letting him go and his crew go 
brings some or all back to a struggling WWF and gives them a much needed shot in the arm. There are numerous factors that have to go into the decision-making process. A lot to unpack here. I want to dig in, but first Greg Gagne and Bill Dundee both let go. What do you remember about that? Um, well, I'll answer that question, but I, I definitely want to put a pin in because again, like, you know, so much of the, um, digital diarrhea that I, I refer to whenever Dave Meltzer's reporting comes up, everything about what he, his entire premise was wrong from the very foundation of everything you read to me was absolutely incorrect. Number one, Hogan's was starting off with Hogan's contract wasn't up in December. I don't know where he would have got that. Hogan signed a two-year deal for four pay-per-views a year. So to suggest that we signed him in July and his contract was already up in in December or would have been up in December is just flawed from the get-go. And then everything else that came after that as, as subsequently was flawed as well, except for the fact that, yes, Greg and Bill Dundee, I, I, I had let them go. I let Bill Dundee go because <clears> – <throat> I just didn't see or hear anything out of him that made sense for me to keep him. He just wasn't a valuable asset to the company. Um, and believe me, when I say that, I don't mean to you know, be – I have nothing against Bill Dundee at all. Uh, but to, to stand out as someone who, abs- who had absolutely nothing to offer amongst the group of people – I mean there were a lot of people that didn't have anything to offer back then – you know, suggested to me that he just, he wasn't somebody I wanted to keep around. Greg Gagne, I let Greg Gagne go for an an entirely different reason. I, you know, I brought Greg Gagne in, number one. Uh, I had really hoped that Greg was going to work out in WCW, and he could have easily worked out. Greg was, and probably still is in some respects, a very, very knowledgeable guy. And, And one of the things that I think Greg was in, possibly could still be, although the industry has changed so much since, you know, Greg was really involved in it. Um, he's a great teacher, when, when it, especially when it comes to psychology. And, it, I, you know, I, I go back to Vern, you know, and, and you look at a lot of the great talent that came out of Minneapolis, a lot of them. And I'm talking about announcers. I'm talking about wrestlers. I'm talking about myself included. Hogan, uh, and I'm, Blair, I'm, I'm, uh, Hogan, you name it. So, you know, Kurt Hennig, Rick Root, so many top, top talents came through Minneapolis and out of Minneapolis originally. And a lot of the ones that really became successful, I think, owe a lot of their success to Vern Gagne because he had a great, he was a, he could be tough to work with. You know, he was stubborn. He only, you know, he only saw things one way. Sound familiar? Um, he, 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 he was very rigid in his approach to things. But when it came to psychology, I, I, I thought I think he was one of the best ever, maybe, and that's probably not fair for me to say, or my opinion probably isn't worth all that much in that regard, because there's a lot of people I didn't work with, you know. Um, so it's hard for me to really compare Vern to other people, but just by virtue of the sheer numbers of top talent that came out of Vern Gagne's influence, uh, I, I think it's a safe bet to say that Vern was one of the best. And Greg, clearly, having grown up in the business around Vern and with Vern. 
um, was a beneficiary of that. And Greg could be a great teacher, but Greg could also be uh, his own worst enemy. You know, and I think when Vern went out of business and the AWA folded, there was a bitterness in Greg. I think Greg always believed that he should have been, you know, and I remember hearing this story. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> when I went to work for, for AWA and after I had finally gotten to the point where, you know, Greg and Vern and others would open up to me uh, about, you know, what was going on in the industry and how, how evil Vince McMahon was and how, you know, Vince was trying to put, you know, AWA and all the smaller territories out of business. I mean, I heard all of the horrible Vince McMahon stories you could possibly hear as a young man, young kid, really young man. But in, in, in wrestling experience, I was a kid. Uh, I, I was, you know, I was very impressionable. I believed all of that stuff. And there was so much bitterness in Greg because I think he really believed he should have been – he should have followed in his father's footsteps. He should have been the head of his own territory. He he When he got to WCW, he was grateful for the job because he needed a gig. Uh, but it didn't take long before I heard conversations. And I heard them from, you know, Bill Shaw, my boss, said, Eric, you need to know something. This Greg, Greg Gagne is not doing you any favors. He's t trying to get meetings with me, and when I do have a conversation with him over the phone, he's he's pulling a rug out from underneath you, behind your back. And I, and I, I got so hot about that. I'm thinking, he was a guy, number one, I thought he was my friend, which, you know, it hurt me personally that a guy that, A, I thought was a good friend. I mean, Greg and I and Vern had been hunting together, and we just did a lot of things together outside of the, the wrestling business. And then I, I I go out of my way. I get him a job in WCW, not just because he was my friend. He was my friend who had value, as I just described. And then to have him kind of go behind my back and, and stab me in the back and try to pull the rug out from underneath me, I thought, well, I, you know, at that point I got pissed and I fired him. And that's why I fired him. And to this day, you know, I, I, I hear these interviews that he's – I mean, I've seen some of them and I just – you know, it makes my head explode, you know, where he takes credit for the NWO. I mean, what, what the fuck? He wasn't even there. Uh, and it was two years after he got fired. Uh, he takes credit for bringing Hulk Hogan in. I, I got news for you, Greg, if you're listening to this. One of the reasons <laughs> – one of the reasons that Hulk Hogan – wanted to make sure that Ric Flair was in the fold is because he didn't trust Greg Gagne. He wouldn't have come into WCW if Greg Gagne would have had any real influence. I had to assure Hulk that Greg wasn't going to have any influence because Hulk knew him better than I did, or he knew him in a way differently than I did, knew him meaning Greg. So when I, when I, to this day, he still has that, he still has those issues. He won't let go of it. And it's unfortunate, you know, part of me, you know, Part of me will always respect Greg and because of my relationship with Vern. But, you know, as far as working with him, uh, you know, I let him go because I knew I couldn't trust him. Man, what a story. I feel like that's a whole podcast in and of itself. Um, there's a lot of, of stuff to unpack here about the other stuff that's written here in, re in regards to sort of creative control involving scenarios with Hogan, Tenta, Leslie, Duggan, and Honky. Can we can we just stop right there? Because what happens with because of the way Dave writes and we're referencing all this stuff, you know, there's so much stuff, as you say, to unpack. But 
for example, nothing in the Hulk Hogan's contract, it gave him creative control over his storyline. There was never any reference to Hulk Hogan having control over anybody else's storyline. Now, if, if, if Hulk Hogan was going to be in a match with John Tenta, for example, then Hulk Hogan would have creative control, if you will, over the outcome of that match. Right. And that was the language. It wasn't that he had creative control over John Tenta's existence within WCW. So if John Tenta was wrestling uh, Steve Austin, Hulk Hogan would not have control over the outcome of that match. So, so much of what Dave reported there, as is usual, is the case with Meltzer, was just completely incorrect, if not a complete lie. Um, in some cases incorrect, in most cases just he's just making stuff up. And this is one of those cases where he's just making stuff up. There was nothing in Hulk Hogan's contract ever that suggested that he had influence over somebody else's existence within WCW. Well, I, I, I don't know what to say about, you know, because so much of my research was based on Hogan's contract being up at the end of the year, and now we're realizing, talking to you, that some of that doesn't add up at all. But I do like the point he makes that, you know, this would have been a potentially disastrous situation after you've put all of this, you know, time, effort, and equity into Hulk Hogan, if he winds up leaving and going right back to the WWF, but that's probably why you thought coming in, if we're going to put this amount of sort of muscle behind him from a promotional standpoint, we've got to make sure he's with us. I don't want to say for the long term because two years is not long term, but it's a lot longer term than just the end of this year. I mean, it's a lot longer term than six months. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, I don't know, it's just mind-boggling. I don't know where he got that or why he wrote that. or, You know, again, and I don't want to try to put myself inside of the dysfunctional mind of Dave Meltzer, but, you know, perhaps that whole page and a half from whatever he wrote, he needed something to write about, and he needed something to make himself sound really smart. So I, I guess if you were to, uh, if I were writing a newsletter or a dirt sheet and I wanted to make myself sound really, really smart. I would point out a horrible flaw, even if it didn't exist, or a horrible mistake, or a horrible situation that someone set them up for, or set themselves up for, and then write about all of the reasons why that was such a bad move. Now, in the course of doing that, I would sound really smart. The only problem is it didn't happen. <laughs> it's just, it's just, if it wasn't so insane it would be funny uh on the march of this pay-per-view you're on television over the weekend and Meltzer would say bischoff while doing announcing screamed that the last pay-per-view proved wcw was number one and told fans to check out the competition and when you're done laughing at the clowns come back we'll still be here i like that you're really um sort of doubling down on your WWF WCW war. And this is before the Monday night war. This is in 1994 ahead of nitro, but it's fair to say, I mean, their most recent pay-per-view was in August. It was SummerSlam and the main event is undertaker versus under faker. A couple of months later, you guys roll out Halloween havoc and it's Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair in a steel cage. No disrespect to the undertaker, but you guys had the much bigger main event. 
We did. But <laughs> if I would, for me to go out on television and make fun of the WWF for having clowns in the ring, knowing what I was going to put on this on this clash of the champions, <laughs> I literally would have hired somebody to kick my ass. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting time in wrestling because you know I mentioned that SummerSlam, but that SummerSlam had the head shrinkers and IRS. And had Bam Bam, Razor Ramon. Fuck, we the, had Yvonne Sullivan on our side. And, and the Butcher and Kevin Sullivan. Oh, my God. I, well, we'll get point. into it. There's, I'm sorry. There's silliness to go around here. It just is. But you know, one of the things that is serious, Ric Flair holds a meeting with the wrestlers at Disney, and he says that Eric Bischoff is in charge of everything administratively. If there's a problem in that regard, go to him. But he himself is in charge of anything to do with the wrestling product. So if anyone has anything to say or any questions, they can contact Rick and he says, uh, despite anything you may hear, he's happy in this role. Now we just mentioned a minute ago that the booking committee at this point is flair Hogan, Jimmy Hart, Eric Bischoff, Kevin Sullivan, and Mike Graham. We've talked, we know how, you know, flair gets along with Hogan. We know how Jimmy Hart gets along with Hogan. We know how you get along with Hogan. The last two members, Kevin Sullivan and Mike Graham, of course, you know, Mike Graham is a Florida guy. Hogan's a Florida guy. Uh, Kevin Sullivan's a Florida guy. I assume Sullivan and Graham really got along great with Hogan as well. Well, Hogan wasn't on the booking committee. That's another, you know, going back to that paragraph or page or whatever it is they wrote that was flawed. Hogan was never part of the booking committee. He, I, I mean, he, he, he was involved in his story, obviously, in his creative, but he we, we, we never... <laughs> It's, I don't even know how to respond to it. So, I mean, again, you're, I understand your question. Did, did Mike Graham get along with Hogan? Of course he did. Uh, Mike knew where his bread was buttered. Mike was just trying to hold on to his job. Mike probably had his own opinion about Hulk that, you know, if he got himself, you know, into a gallon and a half of Captain Morgan, he, he, he might voice his opinion otherwise. But publicly, professionally, he was very supportive of, of Hulk. Uh, Kevin Sullivan certainly was, uh, and, and genuinely was not, not, not in the same way that Mike Graham was. Mike, Mike wasn't the most, uh, Mike, Mike wasn't the most honest person. You know, I don't want to speak too badly of him because he's not here to defend himself, but Mike was Mike, but you know, Kevin got along with Hulk obviously and, and still does. Uh, I'm sure they, they'd sit down and have a great time if they were to cross paths, um, but Hulk was not part of the booking committee. Hulk Hogan is also scheduled to uh, be honored by Make-A-Wish on October 8th in San Diego for 10 years of participating in the program, visiting sick children. In fact, on the night of the Clash of the Champions, Hogan met with one child as part of the Make-A-Wish program and Rick Steamboat, Dustin Rhodes, and the Patriot met another child. Johnny Bubad has been working charity events for WCW as well and working with the D.A.R.E. program. Sting's been with March of Dimes. Flair has been with the Special Olympics and uh, the Guardian Angel, Brad Armstrong. Lots of folks are representing WCW recently at charity organizations. And WCW is even sending autographed pictures to these organizations around the country. This feels like an Eric Bischoff initiative that you would have really turned the volume up on about WCW's sort of nonprofit endeavors. Was that something that you, you thought was a high priority for the company? 
I, I fully supported it, but that wasn't really my initiative. Um, that would have been marketing. Probably um, Mike Weber, uh, Sharon Sadello. I'm not sure if Alan Sharp was with the company quite at, yet at that point. Um, again, I would have fully supported it, but it was not not my initiative. Something that I found interesting this past weekend at StarCast is Mike Weber ran into Johnny B. Bad for the first time since they worked together in WCW. And they had a long conversation. And Miro apparently told Weber that, you know, these days, of course, Miro is a bit of a motivational speaker and speaks in schools, you know, probably four or five times a week. But he says that Weber is really the guy who started it for him because he never had done anything like that before. But Weber was the guy who pushed him into going to speak at schools. And we're talking, of course, about the D.A.R.E. program at the time. And it's funny that, you know, all this time later, that's now what Mero does full time. I was fascinated to learn that. Yeah, it's a really interesting. Now, I haven't had a chance to talk to Mark in, wow, probably 20 years. I'd look forward to, to speaking with him again. But I got a call um, last week from a, a, a very close friend of mine, a, a guy by the name of Tim Ryan. And, you know, people that follow me on Twitter probably see a lot of the things from Tim that, that I repost. And I'll... This is not really a wrestling story, but since you brought it, trying to be bad, I'll tie it all together. Um, Tim Ryan was a very, very successful executive in the city of Chicago, had an office at Wrigley Towers and making a lot of money, very high six figures, probably close to seven. Very successful guy who ended up becoming a heroin addict. He, He started out like so many people do, you know, a little bit of weed here and there, a little bit of blow here and there. You know, a few pills here and there, and fast forward a couple years later, he's a full-blown heroin addict. Uh, lost his his job, and you know, had a lot of personal issues. Um, not long thereafter, once he the heroin got a hold of him, he was actually doing heroin with his son, and um, his his son passed away uh, as a result of a heroin overdose. Uh, Tim eventually went to jail, I think for seven years. He went to prison. He was involved in a a car accident that almost killed a couple people. Did did his time, got clean, has come out now and is one of the leading advocates uh, for uh, interventions. And he does a lot of things with Dr. Drew. We actually did, we produced a television uh, special about him for A&E Networks called Dope to Hope. Uh, and long story short, I've developed a, a really great relationship with Tim over the years and someone that I really respect a lot because he's overcome so much. And now he's really using what he's learned to help a lot of other people in a, in a very, very big, high profile way. And he's great at it. His story is really interesting. But Tim called me last week and he goes, hey, Eric, you know this guy by the name of Mark Miro? Well, I said, sure, I know Mark. And he goes, well, he, he reached out to me and, you know, he knows we're doing a lot of speaking and we spend a lot of time, you know, talking to kids in schools. And I want to just, you know, is he the real deal? <laughs> and I, I assured him that Mark really was the real deal and he was a great motivational speaker because I've seen a lot of things that Mark has done, whether it be on YouTube or the Internet or whatever. So I've, I'm aware of what Mark is doing and, and, and I've seen some of his stuff, I've seen him speaking. And, and I assured him that he is indeed a, a, a legit guy and a good, good human being. And now 
Jim and Mark Barrow are hooking up, I guess, and are going to do some speaking seminars together. So it's just small world kind of funny thing. We just recently covered when worlds collide, which is really the most recent big wrestling event prior to this show that we're talking about. And a few days before this clash, you know, that's when that show's going down and Randy Savage in that same time frame is leaving the world wrestling federation, ending his incredible 10 year run with the company. And he's headed in to WCW. Um, it's an interesting time to say the least in WCW, you, you have the Ric Flair retirement match, macho man's coming in, you know, Hogan's on uh, your top guy and lots of moving parts here in the company. Um, Meltzer would say, and I know you you know, we've sort of debunked, you know, your contract discussion earlier, but Meltzer says that you guys do have a new two year contract on the table for Hogan. But as of this time, it wasn't yet signed. Chat me up. I know you're going to poke holes in that. If he signs in July of 94, when do you re- recall off the top of your head, uh, going back and doing an extension for Hogan? Cause we know he's going to stay for a lot longer than just those initial two years. Yeah. I, I can't, I honestly, I'm not going to make something up. And I, I mean, I just don't remember. I mean, we're talking 24 years ago or whatever it was. Sure. I honestly, I don't remember. One of the interesting things here that I found in my research too, is Hulk Hogan is still very much a part of pop culture. You know, I think everybody remembers in the mid eighties, Hogan was everywhere. Saturday night live sports, illustrated cover cartoons, lunch boxes, you name it. But even here in 1994, there's a new show on MTV. That's really got everybody's attention and it's doing really, really well. And it's changing a lot of opinions about television and, and, and the way it's done. Of course, I'm talking about Beavis and butthead and they're even making fun of Hulk Hogan. They've got his theme song playing in the background. They're talking about him using steroids, which is obviously this is the steroid trial era. You know, are you, are you guys flattered when you see Beavis and butthead referencing a Hulk? I mean, that's a pretty cool, I know in hindsight, people are, are sort of dismissive of Beavis and butthead, but at the time that was a big deal. Yeah, I, I think it would be safe, safer to say that we were probably a little bit more concerned. And again, you know, in 1994, this is really the very beginning of my role in management. I didn't come to the company with a lot of experience and expertise, particularly in media management. So I was I was probably a little more reactive to things than I would be today. And by reactive, I, I mean, you know, Beavis and Butthead would, again, now in hindsight, yeah, ooh, wow, it's a very big, you know, big part of pop culture back at that point. But when it was new, it was uh, not as positive. No, I don't, we didn't look at it at least as something that was positive. It came off kind of, um, how do I want to say it? Uh, not the right words, but, you know, it came off very lowbrow. Uh, not flattering, not something you necessarily, we, I should say, wanted to be associated with. Again, not knowing how how successful it was going to go on to become. But when it first came out and when they first started making those references to the steroid use and things like that, that was something we were trying to, you know, not hide from and not lie about and not, you know, pretend didn't happen. I guess we were trying to pretend it didn't happen, but we were trying to move on and move away from it. 
and try to build on the positive as opposed to wallowing in the negative. So when that stuff came out, I, I think the reaction, it would be safer to say it was more of a negative reaction than a, oh, wow, they're mentioning Hulk Hogan on MTV. We didn't see the value in that the same way than that we possibly might now. And you also have to understand our you know, culture has changed. Right. You know, in today's environment, nobody takes anything seriously. Like the only press is no, the only bad press is no press. You know, if somebody's, you know, controversy creates cash, you know, for God's sake. But, you know, back in 94, not so much. Well, the, the other thing that I want to mention is um, the, the idea of a New Japan Hulk Hogan match here in 1994. Supposedly, there was a match planned for Hulk Hogan to wrestle Antonio Inoki, I think in November. And Meltzer would say the original plan, the Noki Hogan match appears to be out the window because of Hogan's new WCW contract that pays him anywhere from 300,000 to a million dollars match. All of a sudden his estimated 100 to $125,000 per match deal in new Japan. Isn't enough money. This is the era where you're trying to work more with new Japan. Do you remember hearing that Hogan was trying to work a deal with new Japan prior to you signing him? No. And that doesn't mean that there wasn't conversations. You know, I, I wasn't dealing too closely with the Nokia at the time. Most of my conversations were with Masa Saito. Um, but there, there may have been some discussions. There may have been a desire on Anoki's part to try to get a match. There could have been any number of people. Masawa Hattori, for example, who was someone who was uh, kind of a liaison you know, Masawa had a, an apartment in New York City, but it was also a referee in in New Japan. And, and Hattori uh, also acted as kind of a go-between, you know, Enoki and someone like Hulk Hogan. So there, you know, there may have been some conversations about it, but nothing that was on my radar. And certainly it didn't come up in any of my early conversations with Hulk when we were negotiating his deal. And by the way, the Hogan was being paid 400000 per pay-per-view with an upside um, based on, you know, increases over the average of the previous pay-per-views. Um, so he's being paid 400000 per pay-per-view and the televisions that went along with it. There were four weeks of television that went along with each pay-per-view. So it wasn't, you know, $400,000 for one event. It was actually $400,000 spread out over five events um, if you include television. So to be clear, November is when we realize that match won't be happening. Of course, it's supposed to be the main event of the Tokyo Dome show in January, but in November, apparently is when new Japan really steps their game up and makes an offer to WCW to continue their partnership and be exclusive. And allegedly this comes when the UWFI is negotiating for an opportunity to work with WCW. And when they realize, Hey, wait a minute, we may have some competition. New Japan re-enters the picture with a big offer for around $750,000 a year. Their desire to work with WCW talent has been mostly limited to Steven Regal, Sting, Brad Armstrong, and the nasty boys. But Meltzer would say, don't expect a lot of WCW product to involve many from new Japan. Uh, but there could be added pressure for Vader to return to new Japan. Uh, which may be a totally different issue. This has always been an interesting 
topic for us to discuss here on the show, because there's so many listeners to this show who enjoy the new Japan product today. That's a totally different regime, not nearly the same people. And we've talked in the past how Sonny Ono was really more of a liaison and a translator to help facilitate this arrangement and this agreement and this relationship. But I don't know that I knew until now that new Japan was actually paying WCW for the association. $750,000 is a lot of money. Mm. <clears throat> I want to be careful how I answer this because the, the reporting on that wasn't entirely wrong, but it wasn't accurate either. Um, it, it was misleading there. Yes, there was a minimum amount of cash involved, but it would be, let, let me it'd probably be easier for me to articulate it this way than trying to remember the language from an agreement that was written 20 years ago or more. Um, for example, let's, let's say Conrad Thompson was a, was a talent for WCW and I paid Conrad Thompson $10,000 a week. Um, Conrad Thompson may end up on a list that new Japan would book four times per year for a week at a time. Does that make sense? So, yeah. so let's say if, if I'm paying you $10,000 a week and New Japan is going to guarantee that they're going to book Conrad Thompson four weeks out of the year, then there's a $40,000 exchange taking place there. What that money was was a way for me to offset some of my talent costs or mitigate some of my talent costs. And there was a minimum involved, and I don't know if it was $750,000 a year. That's the part I don't want to comment on because it may have been accurate. I don't. I just don't remember. But I, it, it's kind of misleading the way it's reporting. The way it's being reported, or at least the way I'm understanding it here, is that they wrote us a check for seven hundred fifty grand just so that they're associated with us, and that wasn't really the case. That that number, whatever it was, let's just say for case of dis- discussion here, was seven hundred fifty thousand dollars represented a minimum a minimum amount of money that would have been paid to WCW throughout the course of the year so that I could so that New Japan could use certain amounts of certain of my talent and we charged them exactly what we were pay, what we had to pay them based on the way I laid that out to you so for example if you know this is probably a bad example but if for sake of discussion they wanted to book Hulk Hogan for assuming that Hulk would go along with it, which he wouldn't have. But assuming that Hulk would have, they would have wanted to book Hulk Hogan. Well, if it cost us four hundred thousand dollars for an event, a pay per view, if Inoki would have wanted to to book Hulk Hogan, that's what it would have cost him. Again, assuming Hulk would have been willing to go over and do it. Hulk's, Hulk's Japan was carved out of Hulk's original deal, by the way. That was a carve out in his deal so that he could negotiate his own deals with Japan if he ever chose to. He never kind of part of him really wanted to because he had such a great experience there early in his career, um, very, very early in his career. He loved Japan. He lived in Japan for quite a while in his experiences there. Even today, you know, you sit down and have a couple of beers with Hulk and, you know, you start talking about some of the highlights of of his career. Japan always comes up and he speaks glowingly about it. And I think, you know, he always liked to think that someday he would go back and kind of relive some of those experiences. But the realities of it were not there for him either. He didn't really like to travel. 
Uh, Hulk has never really enjoyed traveling a ton. Um, and even by the time he got to, to WCW in 94, he was physically already starting to really, um, he didn't feel like he was 25 or 26 years old anymore. And he knew that going to Japan and having the style of match that he would have to have in Japan was probably not something that he was really interested in doing. Even though he couldn't really give it up and say, no, I'll never do it again. He wanted to keep the door open. He was never serious about doing it either. Let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about Charlie Norris. It's a name I'm sure you haven't heard in a long time. He files lawsuits against WCW on November 7th. He was an underneath guy. He's filing these lawsuits in Minneapolis. Um, and he's going to sue both the company and Greg Gagne for breach of contract and racial discrimination. And he's asking for punitive damages as well. And of course, all of his attorney's fee as attorney's fees. He's, uh, he's an Indian. He's 31 years old. And he's saying that he's been told by WCW to perform stereotypical Indian actions in the ring. And he says he reluctantly went along with those demands by a supervisor, but when he ultimately refused saying he felt like he was being demeaned by doing the screams and dances and tomahawk chops and war hoops. He was then fired for having a bad attitude and being lazy and uncooperative. And, you know, we've talked about these lawsuits in the past. What do you, uh, what do you make of this one in particular? I, you know, I remember it and I remember Charlie because he was from Minneapolis. Uh, and I, and I do remember, not in great detail, the the lawsuit. Um, the gist is I, Greg Gagne was, was named specifically because he would refer to Charlie as Big Chief. And he would repeatedly demonstrate how the promotion wanted him to dance in the ring. And he would also say that I was being paid than the other performers and they were only paying me $800 a week. And they said they were going to pay me 1500 And they had promised extra pay for travel and costume expenses. And they did that for other folks, but not for him. And uh, uh, this lawsuit, by the way, is, is also in the era where Rick Rude is suing, Missy Hyatt is suing, and Ranger Ross in particular is suing also on racial discrimination charges. And for better or worse, WCW and more specifically TBS have gained a reputation within wrestling as being, quote, easy touches when it comes to getting these suits settled out of court. I was even told specifically by a reporter once upon a time that the threshold was $80,000. If you asked for eight, less than $80,000, WCW or Turner would just write the check, make it go away. Actually, it was slightly more than that. It was a hundred thousand. The, the, and it was, you know, it was a mistake and a lot of people took advantage of it. Now I'm not, I'm not going to suggest that Charlie didn't have an issue. Again, I don't remember the specific details of it, but I know enough of it. And just listening to you kind of read off the complaint, uh, there's some meat on the bone there. You know, now I'm also not going to, you know, bury Greg Gagne or anybody else that would have been involved because, again, it was a different time. You know, keep in mind that, you know, Tatanka, you know, Wahoo McDaniel, Jay Strongbow, you know, there were, you know, Native Americans were portrayed in a certain stereotypical way. And, and back in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, early 90s, it wasn't necessarily uh, something that people 
frowned upon the same way that they do today. Our culture has changed. Maybe we're more enlightened now, I guess, is a better way to say it. Um, not being a smartass, but we're just – we've evolved <laughs> as human beings. But again, you know, Greg was probably – and I'm, again, I'm not – defending him by any stretch of the imagination, but putting things in the context of the time, which is so important because otherwise you can look at some of the things that, you know, that we did back in the sixties and the seventies and the eighties and I mean, you could, I mean, look at what we did with, you know, what was done. I should say, not what we did, we'll look what, what was done with midget wrestlers or there I go again, little people, <laughs> There's a perfect example. You couldn't even call a little person a midget and get away with it today. Whereas back in the 60s and the 70s and 80s, you certainly could. And there were always caricatures of themselves um, until, you know, not that long ago, you know, in, in certain wrestling organizations, which will remain unnamed at this point because we all know who they are. But it was a different time. And yes, I can see how if I'm an attorney and I'm representing Charlie Norris and Charlie Norris comes in and says, yeah, but Greg Gagne wanted me to wear a, a war bonnet and, you know, wanted me to come to the ring carrying a tomahawk and, you know, make whoop, whoop, whoop sounds uh, like I'm, I'm, you know, going to war. Then I, if I'm an attorney, I'm going to go, well, that's kind of racist. I, I think there's a case here. Certainly a case with a company that has a reputation of just throwing in the towel as long as it's under $100,000. And WCW did have that reputation, which is why so many people took advantage of it. If you get fired, if you're going to quit, if you don't like the position that you're in, and you just want a $100,000 payday, sue WCW. They'll cut you a check. And you know how, Conrad, you've been around the industry now long enough, and it's different now than it was back then. But if the word gets out, that there's an easy payday to be had. How long do you know? Telephone, telegraph, <laughs> tele wrestler. How long do you think it takes before that gets out? Yeah. Listen, as soon as I announce, you know, there's a star cast, my, uh, my phone blows up with, with guys. Hey, can I get on this show? So yeah, I mean, that's true. Even in the podcast space, you know, just anywhere where, you know, they think they're, Hey, here's a new income stream. They come a running. Especially if it's an, and again, go back to, you know, 1994, you know, $100,000 is a lot of money. It's a lot of money today. But, you know, to a guy like Charlie Norris, who's probably never really made more than 40 or 50 grand a year for a full year, the thought of getting a, you know, a payday for 100 grand. Now, obviously, you're going to have, you know, attorney's fees and things like that coming off the top of that. But still, you know, a lump sum payout of, you know, 40, 50 grand um, was probably pretty attractive. And I'm not suggesting that's what Charlie was thinking, by the way. I'm not taking anything away from his claim. Like I said, opening this up, I can certainly see why there was some legitimacy to that claim and why someone would file it. Um, but there was also, I'm sure, another side of that coin. You know, I, I'm not sure that Charlie was necessarily best talent, you know, and he may have had expectations for himself that weren't necessarily consistent with what, you know, people in management felt like he was really worth. You know, who knows? I, I don't know. And I don't remember enough of the granular details of the situation to, to really discuss it other than to say I think Charlie probably did have a legitimate claim to some degree I think there were probably mitigating factors on the other side of the equation but I think it's a big mistake especially you know in today's environment to take somebody who's a Native American or African American or Mexican American and ask them to 
to become caricatures of uh, of themselves. Three little tidbits before we get to the show. We've uh, spent a lot of time sort of setting this one up. Around this time, Stephen Regal and uh, another young lad named Jean Paul Levesque start a tag team together. Of course, we know uh, Levesque is going to go on to be Triple H. We haven't spent a ton of time talking about him. He was uh, trained by Killer Kowalski and worked a lot of the Northeast Indies before he found his way in WCW. Do you remember, what was the first time you remember meeting him or him being on your radar here in WCW? Oh, I mean, I remember he, he, Paul came along at a point in time where we were still very much in a kind of cost-cutting frame of mind which sounds ironic because we're bringing in Hogan and we're bringing in some of these other bigger names. And I'm not suggesting that we're just trying to cut, you know, costs all the way across the board, but there was a lot of wasteful spending that was just part of WCW's culture, you know, prior to me getting in, into management, you know, and I've talked about it before. One of, one of those areas was travel. You know, we looked at our travel budget, not only was travel completely mismanaged and, you know, I've kind of suggested or not suggested, I've kind of gone into this a little bit in the past, but you know, this was really before computers, you know, and emails and e-ticketing and all of the e-things that exist today. This, you know, going back to 94, 93, 94, 92, 93, 94, in the early part of my, my career in management, um, and even association with the company, for example, if I was living in Minneapolis and I was scheduled to come into Atlanta on a Monday to do voiceovers or to go to TV or whatever, um, I would get a hard ticket in the mail, express mail to my house, a hard ticket that I would then take to the airport and use to get on a flight. So let's say, for example, on Thursday the previous week, I'm scheduled to come in on a Monday, and then by Friday my travel – my schedule changes and I don't have to be until Wednesday, guess what? They'd send me a new ticket. Now I, I, I you know, I would turn in my old tickets cause I'm just, you know, not a thief <laughs> and, and would have never felt good about not doing that. You know, you got to look at yourself in the mirror and decide what you're willing to live with within yourself. But I can tell you that there were plenty of people that held on to those tickets because once they were issued to you and they were in your name, that was your ticket. It was no longer the company's ticket. That was your ticket. Now, if you turned it in, the company could then get credit for it. But if you didn't turn it in, you could turn around and use it. And because there was no e-ticketing at that time, there was just no way for the travel department within Turner Broadcasting. And again, this wasn't a WCW issue. This was a Turner Broadcasting issue. Travel was handled handled by Turner Broadcasting, not by WCW. Um, so there were talents out there that would constantly change their flights. Even if their schedules weren't changing, they'd have personal issues at home. So they'd have to get in. They may even fly out the same day, but on a different flight, they get a new ticket. And there were talents running around that, you know, had tens of thousands of dollars worth of these, these travel vouchers or tickets that they could use or give to their friends or whatever. Um, 
that was a, that was one issue within travel. The other was that we had so many talents that lived so far away from Atlanta and where we did the majority of our television. Now, again, this was 94. And occasionally we'd go to Baltimore. Or we'd go to, you know, Hera Arena in Dayton, Ohio, or we'd go to St. Louis. So there were occasions when we would go to, you know, bigger cities outside of the southeast. But for the most part. You know, our television was done in Atlanta, WCW Saturday night down the center stage in Atlanta. Our syndicated shows, WCW Pro, WCW Main Event, were typically produced within a 150-mile radius of Atlanta. So when Paul Levesque came along or came to my attention, and by the way, he came to my attention through Terry Taylor. Uh, Terry must have gotten a tape from him or something. And... And when Paul Levesque came to my attention and everybody was excited about bringing him in, they saw a lot of potential in Paul, but he lived in the Northeast and he came in right at that period of time when we were really trying to micromanage our, our, our talent travel budget. And the biggest issue I had with him was that he didn't live in Atlanta. And I, I, I think I, well, there was an acronym I used uh, to describe Paul. I think I even said it to him once. He was geographically undes. He was a good. That's right, G-U-D. Geographically undesirable. <laughs> and I heard him reference that a couple of years ago, making fun of me for for putting him into that category. But again, at the time, we just couldn't afford. To, to fly people in from the West Coast or fly even people from Minneapolis. And we're just trying to get everybody to move uh, and, and reside within the Atlanta market so we could cut down on our travel expenses. Let's uh, talk about another expense you're cutting. Uh, Ricky Steamboat is officially fired from WCW. His contract would have expired at the end of the year. Uh, and he was instead dropped at the end of the cycle since he's not going to be able to uh, return by the end of his contract. Uh, of course, we're talking about the injury he suffered in August at clash with, uh, Steve Austin. It's a back injury and he's done. Uh, this will be his, uh, his retirement here. What do you remember about here in 94 Ricky steamboat having to retire due to an injury and you guys, I mean, was there an interest in him doing something else behind the scenes and, and he wasn't interested or how do you remember you severing ties with Ricky? You know, I, I don't recall the, the details about that. I mean, other than, yes, there was a back injury. The the, the one aspect of, of Ricky leaving WCW that I do remember is that a lot of it was because of his wife, she, his wife at that time. Uh, I don't think he's married to her any longer, but his wife was a real – she was like his agent slash lawyer slash wife slash booker whatever you know and she she was the biggest issue um and and caused a lot of issues that probably had a lot to do with with ricky not sticking around wcw you're talking of course about bonnie uh he was with bonnie from like 85 to 03 uh, but he got married just a couple of years ago to a, a tennessee gal and now she's converted him to the dark side he is uh he's in Hunter orange every time you see him now. So. I know I saw him this weekend and he's got his, you know, Tennessee shirt on and he's, you know, couldn't wait to get home and watch the game. And you know, he's all Tennessee. Well, oh my gosh. Well, somebody who would have loved the manscape 2.0 perfect package is uh, Marcus Alexander Bagwell. I'm sure of it. He's teaming with the Patriot in the first match here on clash of the champions 29, and they're going to take on Paul Orndorff and Paul Roma. 
I love that team name, by the way, pretty wonderful. Uh, Bagwell and Patriot are going to regain the WCW tag team titles. They go nine minutes and 20 seconds. Talk about stakes, which I know you were always a big proponent of the Patriot is putting his mask up in this match where if they lose, he'll unmask. Orndorff is going to work the match with a blown knee and most are believing he's going to need surgery. He's already missed about a week's worth of house shows coming into this, but he wanted to get through the clash prior to the match. Colonel Robert Parker is going to claim that his team of Arn Anderson and bunkhouse buck have been guaranteed a title shot on the 19th of November, which is the Saturday TV show against whoever wins the match gets two and a quarter stars and the observer. Uh, again, it's a nine minute match and uh, David classified as a solid opener with good heat. what do you think of this one? You know, I, 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 I agree with Dave on that point. I was <clears throat> expecting the worst, <clears throat> excuse me, this morning when I woke up early and, and watched the show, I, I was kind of expecting the worst when I saw it initially, but the match was, I, I thought it was actually a pretty good match. And again, I was, especially when I go back and watch these things that I haven't seen in forever, I always watch the, I watch the crowd as much as I watch the action in the ring. Because for me, you know, and maybe I'm different than everybody else that writes about wrestling or talks about it or is a fan of it. But I, I guess as a producer at heart, when I'm watching something in the ring, I'm kind of paying attention to what's going on in the ring. But I'm, all, I'm paying just as much attention to how the crowd is reacting to it. And the crowd was hot for this match. You know, it, it was a much better match than, <clears throat> like I said, I thought it would be. And I really liked the finish which is unusual for me to, to say in a, in a WCW match, especially, you know, an undercard match like this was. I thought the finish was was really uh, pretty well done. And, and uh, overall, I thought it was a really good match. Yeah, I, I think this has uh, a lot of really underrated talent. We know Bagwell's going to be essentially a lifer here with WCW. Orndorff, certainly on the back nine of his career. I think Paul Romo was criminally underrated. I wonder what his career would have looked like had we never put him in the four horsemen. I feel like that's a black mark or a black cloud on his career and the Patriot, you know, we know is going to be, you know, an almost tippy top guy with the WBF for just a cup of coffee in a few years with Bret Hart, when he's doing the sort of Canada, uh, America and USA versus Canada angle. Talk to me a little bit about this team of Patriot and Bagwell are known as stars and stripes. Talk to me a little bit about the Patriot in this era. We haven't heard a lot about him and his WCW run. Well, I actually knew Dell Dell Wilkes is the Patriots name. I actually knew Dell from my time in AWA. Dell Wilkes uh, worked for a while while I was in AWA, and that's when I, I first became familiar with them. Super nice guy, very, very talented. I think he was a collegiate football player. I don't remember what college. He may have even had, um, I'm searching my memory here, he may have even had a brief stint uh, in the pros. Could be wrong about that. Somebody listening will do the research and correct me, I'm sure. He's from South Carolina. He played with the Gamecocks. Okay. Um, super, super, you know, obviously great condition, great athlete, and a, a very talented guy. Uh, easy to work with. Um, I, I can't remember exactly what the circumstances were in WCW and why and when he left or how he left, but, uh, I always got along with him. I always enjoyed working with him. It's just interesting to me that, that he doesn't wind up sticking around very long. He's, uh, he's out of there in may of 95. 
uh, he, when he comes in here at stars and stripes, by the way, uh, uh, the rumor and innuendo is that the bruise brothers, Ron and Don Harris, who've always been a lightning rod for controversy. Uh, they quit after the Disney tapings because apparently they refused to do a job to stars and stripes. Do you remember, you know, in this era, the bruise brothers refusing to put over stars and stripes. That seems sort of like a silly hill to die on. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't have been directly involved in that. It would have been either Flair or Kevin Sullivan that would have had to dealt with that face to face. But I, I would agree with you if that indeed was the case, uh, that was a stupid hill to die on. Well, speaking of stupid, next up, we've got the honky tonk man. And he's going to be wrestling with Johnny B. Bad. Johnny B. Bad is defending the television championship. They go six minutes and 14 seconds. Bad picks up the win by DQ and he gets a quarter star. Meltzer would say poor match, but no worse than expected. Honky kept stalling, claiming his hair was pulled. After three minutes, Bad messed up Honky's hair and sent him running. After the obligatory ref bump, Honky hit Bad with a Balsawa guitar for the DQ quarter star. Honky's not around much longer after this one, man, you've, uh, talked a lot about how much you enjoyed firing him in the past. How fun was it to watch him here with your, your old pal, Johnny B bad for the first time in a long time. Uh, this was painful. This is, you know, in fact, I was about halfway through this match and I, I sent, uh, an email out or excuse me, a, a Twitter message out saying, oh my God, Conrad's going to kick my ass over this show. It was so horrible. It was so horrible, and I have to remind myself because I can go off on a tangent with certain people, and anybody that's listening to me talk about um, Honky Tonk Man knows where I have the potential of going whenever his name comes up. And I have to remind myself that in the context of the time, which was, you know, 94, wrestling was still on the heels of its very cartoonish animated almost comedic type characters, cartoonish characters. And we're going to see a lot more of it, unfortunately, on this Clash of the Champions, Clash of the Champions 29, which you can go watch at the WWE Network, by the way, if you want a good laugh. And I'm not going to suggest anybody do anything illegal or unhealthy or any of the sort. But if someone were inclined to sit down and have a cocktail tonight when they get home from work or... Uh, roll their favorite smoke, whatever that may be, and really just laugh your ass off, go back and watch this this show, Clash of the Champions 29, because there is some goofy shit going on in this one. Nothing goofier than Honky Tonk Man's gimmick that he wears to the ring. I mean, it, it it's just everything about it is is so bad, you have to go back and watch it. It's comical. It's so bad, it's hilarious. And this match, I, I think, out of all the goofy shit on this card, I don't know. There's some other goofy stuff coming up here in a minute, but this has to be at least in the top two. Uh, of, of, this has to be, if not the winner uh, of the goofiest shit award, at least a close runner-up. Man, and I felt bad. I feel bad for Johnny. We were talking about Johnny earlier on and all the great things that he's doing right now. And this was, you know, relatively early in Johnny's career. And I'm looking at his goofy gimmick and it's just, oh, the whole thing was just so, man, it was tough to watch. It oh, really by, was. By the way, it dawned on me. Uh, I don't know how this was lost on me, but it, 
I really spent a lot of time thinking about it this weekend because, you know, we're talking about Mark Merrill now, the motivational speaker, but you go back in time and you realize that this guy was a, a golden gloves boxer and married Sable before she was a star before she's Sable, which is just Raina Merrill, but she's going to go on to be one of the hottest ladies in the history of wrestling and one of the biggest stars. And just when you put that together, golden gloves, badass pulling and marrying one of the hottest women in the history of the industry that you'll ever see. And then on TV, he has to play this, um, I don't know, more for lack of a better word. And this is probably not the right word. Prissy character, you know, where flamboyant, flamboyant, just my boy. So flamboyant, but in real life, we'll fuck you up, but steal your girl. And, and now motivational speak, dude, nobody has a story like Mark Merrow. We got to, we got to spend more time talking about him another time. It's a date. Let's talk about Harlem heat and the nasty boys here, man. This is one of the most WCW things ever. It's a 10 minute and 55 minute match. The storyline here is, uh, well, Sherry's going to show up and Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan are going to be astonished or pretend to be because she shows up in the middle of the match. Like, what is she doing here? Oh my God, it's Sherry. But when they're walking to the ring, the lower third, as, as Tony would say, Chiron says Harlem heat. Booker T and Stevie Ray and underneath it says accompanied by sensuous Sherry. So then when she comes out later, the announcers have to pretend like, oh my God, look who's here. When it was literally announced on their way to the ring for the television viewer at home, 10 minutes and 55 seconds. Um, Sachs has Stevie Ray pinned, but Sherry's distracting the ref that enables Booker T to come off the top rope, uh, and, uh, reverse the pin. It gets one star. Harlem heat, get the win. I've always enjoyed this era of the nasty boys. They're a bit of a guilty pleasure for me. I don't think they get the, the credit they deserve for being a great brawling tag team who had consistently entertaining matches, Harlem heat, no different, but for whatever reason, this one wasn't the best. It's not terrible. I mean, there's definitely, uh, a hot open to it with some good brawling and good selling, but it does seem like it starts to slow down a little bit. What'd you think? You know, it, 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 you know, we've seen so many of these matches with the Nasty Boys and, and Harlem Heat. Um, I think what made this one stand out for me, and it's, you know, it was subtle, but Stevie Ray, I think probably from a physical point of view, Stevie Ray probably looked as good here in this match as I recall seeing him. He wasn't as big. He got much bigger, you know, later on in WCW. Uh, It was just – I mean, he's a big guy anyway. And, you know, he's obviously a very, very physical guy and works out and all that. But he he was lean enough here or light enough that his in-ring work, I think, was much faster paced. Uh, It looked – uh, faster pace, I should say, not paced. A uh, faster pace. Um, he he is he was more aggressive in the ring than I think generally people remember him him being. You know, later on in his career in WCW, Stevie was kind of like the he, he you know he's big enough, kind of like a Kevin Nash. He's not Kevin Nash's height, obviously, but big enough guy. He was like a 
come in and lay that one big, you know, right hand on you or that one big bump on you, one big shoulder tackle, and it would be devastating because of his size and his power. But in this match, you know, he was throwing a lot of rights and lefts and just moving much quicker. And that's that's what stood out to me. And and possibly only because, like I said, I've seen a lot of their matches in the past and they tend to all kind of be good. They're never bad. They're just varying degrees of pretty good, if not some of them have been damn damn close to great. Um, I, I, I like the... I like what you picked up on about sensational Sherry and getting that graphic. I'm, I'm sure it was the communication to the truck was, nope, she's coming out. She's part of the, you know, she's their manager. And then probably sometime around four or five in the afternoon, somebody came up with the idea that said, no, 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 I got a better idea. Instead of her walking out, let's use her as a surprise. And somebody forgot to tell the truck. You know what I mean? That's a, a perfect example of the right hand not knowing what the left hand is doing when it comes to live television. I do want to mention, not too long before this actually happens here at the Clash, Meltzer would report, Sherry managed Steve Austin at the Disney tapings, and Austin was picking up more of the flair mannerisms. Word we got is that Austin originally, when doing the job at the bash for Duggan, was promised the belt back at the last pay-per-view. But guess who overruled the committee? Now he's being told they're grooming him as the next flair with Sherry. So copy his mannerisms that'll lead to your work, uh, to face against uh flair next year. So lots of moving parts here, but do you remember, Hey, flares on the sidelines, but if we have Sherry sort of second Austin and we have him sort of mimic the mannerisms, we can eventually lead to a big return. And then sometime in 1995, we'll have a big pay-per-view clash for Flair coming out of retirement to take on Steve Austin. I mean, that's a great Ric Flair question. That would have been probably a discussion that Flair would have had with Steve if there was a discussion about that or if that's where the idea came from because Flair was booking at the time. Uh, It, it, you know, wasn't a part of any conversations I had. I certainly didn't promise anybody a belt back or, you know, approach Steve about, you know, how we should be working and starting to mimic Ric Flair. It would would have been – it just wasn't in my wheelhouse at that time. But I could certainly see it. Kind of makes sense as you're suggesting it to me. I mean mean, when I say makes sense, I can see how it made sense at that time uh, to someone, especially if that someone was Ric Flair. But that, that really would be a Ric Flair question. Next up, one hell of a match. If you're going to watch one match on the show, watch this one. It's Vader and Dustin Rhodes. They go 11 minutes and 46 seconds. This is the era where Meltzer was not always writing very glowing things about Dustin, but he would say this was easily the best match on the show. Uh, They're going to get three and a half stars from Vader or uh, from Vader Dustin here. 11 minutes, 46 seconds. Uh, Rhodes is going to hit the bulldog. Race gets on the apron and Rhodes goes after him. That allows Vader to clobber Rhodes from behind and then use a face first power bomb for the pin. And then Vader gets on the top rope. He's going to splash Rhodes, but Jim Duggan comes out and knocks race out of the ring and then rolls Dustin out of the way and chases race and Vader out with his two by four. So, you know, the, the story, I guess here is we're going to set up Duggan and Vader, but originally I think there was a lot of speculation that Starcade would have been built around Hogan and Vader. Instead, it winds up being Hogan 
and Ed Leslie, the former Brutus Beefcake. Was that your initial plan for Starcade, Vader Hogan, and then Hogan was just more comfortable with Leslie instead? There was discussions about Vader Hogan right off the bat. I mean, everybody kind of saw that as a marquee matchup. We all knew it was going to happen at some point. Uh, but look, there were issues with Vader. Vader was, oh, I want to be careful how I talk about Leon. Um, he wasn't always the easiest person to deal with when it came to doing business. Um, he was emotional. He was temperamental. He would sometimes be very, very manipulative. Um, and I don't think it, it took a long time for Hulk to, to gain confidence in him. He didn't want to work with somebody like that. Um, again, we go back and talk about this all the time, but that's why Ric Flair was such an integral part of getting Hogan to come to WCW because Ric Flair was the one guy that Hulk knew he could trust to be business 100% of the time from beginning to end uh, with regard to Hulk. And Vader was, Vader was, you know, the antithesis. <laughs> he was the opposite of that. Um, he, it, it took a long time to get Hulk comfortable with Vader. and had nothing to do with the physicality or any of the things that people presume were the issues. Just Leon could, Vader could sometimes be a very, very difficult guy to do business with. Um, so while we, yes, I'm sorry, you know, I went off on a tangent there while, yeah, it was something that we, we, we had talked about Vader Hogan. There was never any definitive, okay, let's do it for Starcade. That, that wasn't the issue. It was more of a general, um, concept and, and strategy, not a very specific one as it related to dates. All right. Are you ready for your lumps here? Well, you know, let me ask this first, Dustin Rhodes here. Uh, he's a baby face. He's going to stay baby face the entire WCW run. It doesn't feel like you guys have a lot of creative in mind for him. When he pops over to the WWF, he becomes a heel. I believe for the first time with the gold dust character was, was it just too hard to swallow that a member of dusty Rhodes clan would have been a heel or was it ever discussed or was Dustin not a good fit for heel? Can you speak to that at all? Again, I wasn't booking at the time, Conrad, so I, I, I don't want the audience to think I have no memories of anything from 1994. It's just you, you have to understand that wasn't my role in the company at that time. Um, I had no confidence in myself as a booker. I had no desire to be on the creative side of things other than knowing what was going on and, and, and you know trying to put the right people in place to get us where we needed to be. Uh, but you know, determining whether, you know, Dustin would have been a good heel or a baby face just would not have been a conversation I would have had in 1994 would, would be later on by 1996, certainly 97, but not in 1994. Um, you know, I, the, the one thing I do want to comment on though, uh, on this match is just how great Dustin looked here. I mean, again, Vader was not the easiest guy to work with sometimes. I mean, just his sheer size alone and his athleticism. I mean, he was a very, very athletic, powerful guy. And go back and watch this match. You know, some of the, you know, the punches, you know, when, when Vader got Dustin into the corner and was working him over, you know, those were some stiff, stiff punches. And Dustin just took him, you know, like a champ. 
And when it was time for Dustin to come back with his own offense and make his comeback, um, he did a fantastic job. There was a couple awkward kind of Hulk Hogan-esque comeback moments in this match that kind of took me out of the moment just a little bit. But uh, for the most part, I think this was certainly by 1994, this had to have been one of Dustin Rhodes' best outings. He looked really, really good. I think the finish was Fakakta. I hated the finish. Um, again, you know, so often WCW finishes, it's just never, was never WCW strengths. Uh, in fact, it was a glowing weakness. And th- this match may, may go down in history as having one of the worst ref bumps in the history of wrestling. Uh, but overall, take, taking the finish out and the ref bump out, I, I really, really good match. I was proud of Dustin watching this. I was, I was proud for him back in 1994 for this match. It was unanimous amongst the readers of the Wrestling Observer that this was the best match on the card. Next up, well, the worst match on the card. Jim Duggan is going to beat Steve Austin by DQ in 58 seconds. That's according to the observer. Uh, everywhere else is reporting it was 17 seconds, but here's the backstory. This is a rematch from their fall brawl match, uh, where Duggan would actually beat Steve Austin for the United States title. And they have a rematch at Halloween havoc where Duggan also wins this time by DQ. So we talked about earlier that, Hey, we're going to you know, have you drop it, but you'll get the title back. And then as Meltzer said, you know, who overruled the committee, uh, God, that's so horrible. I mean, that's, you know, who was, was Hulk Hogan, obviously. And Hulk would have never done that. I just, this is so, and and here's, here's where it is. I'm going to try not to get, you know, shitty about this. It's just petty. It's like, Dave's own distaste or whatever, or, or whether he's pandering to a certain por- portion of his audience who didn't like Hulk Hogan at the time, whatever the case may be, everything had to be Hulk Hogan's fault. Everything had to be Hulk Hogan's fault. Hulk Hogan overruled the booking committee. That's bullshit. Hulk Hogan didn't give two shits what was going on in the booking committee unless it involved him. So I just, you know, I just, I want to point that out, not because I'm angry about it, not because it fucking even matters anymore, but just, you know, keep that in mind when you are reading current things that prove to be so far off point and so wrong that so much of what this guy writes is just his own personal observations that are not based in any kind of facts. It's just the world that he lives in. Well, chat me up about this because I am curious, like, you know, what, what is the, if it wasn't Hogan, you, you, you're a smart guy. What, why, why are we putting the belt on Jim Duggan in 1994 at the expense of Steve Austin? Like one guy, and and I'm a big fan of Hacksaw Jim Duggan, especially as a kid, but in 94, it's clear that Duggan stars fading. He's on the back nine. He's headed down. Austin's headed up. We're going to. We're going to beat him very, very quickly. And then in the rematch, we're not going to give him the belt there either. I'm not talking about today's match. I'm talking about fall brawl and Halloween havoc. Why do that? Why not put the belt back on? I mean, I understand, you know, maybe the, the baby face gets over on the heel and ha ha, I got your belt, but clearly Austin's going to be the bigger star here. He's got the bigger upside. Or did you disagree in 94? 
Well, it's not that I disagreed. It, it's, you know, did Ric Flair disagree or did Kevin Sullivan disagree or did, did the collective group see it or feel it? You know, the collective group didn't have a crystal ball in 1994. Uh, neither, did, neither did Steve Austin, by the way. Uh, Steve Austin, you know, struggled a long time after, you know, he left WCW and kind of floundered until he until he woke up one day as Stone Cold Steve Austin. Um, and, and, and so it's not like, you know, the handwriting was on the wall. Number one, number two, and again, you have to go back, put yourself in the context of the time. Um, number two, I think it's fair to say, especially after looking at this abortion of a show, um, there was still a lot of residual kind of late eighties, early nineties, approach to characters and i think the thinking clearly was that cartoonish animated poor man's version of wwf type characters that we're about unfortunately to have to discuss now for the next 10 or 15 minutes uh was kind of like the prevailing view of what worked at that time not necessarily in my case um or and not necessarily not my case either by the way i i, I certainly didn't you know, as the guy that was running the company, I, I certainly didn't, you know, leave my office and come down to TV and go, look, guys, all this cartoonish gimmicky shit is driving me nuts. You know, this avalanche gimmick and this David Sullivan, Yvonne Sullivan, Kevin Sullivan, fuck the crazy shit, you know, all this stuff. I don't want to see this anymore. I didn't do that. You know, if I would have had a crystal ball, I would have. Or if I would have had more confidence in, in my opinion at that time, I didn't like it. I, I can say that, honestly. It wasn't my cup of tea. I've always liked, as I've said a million times, you know, go back and listen to some of the, the things that stood out to me as a young wrestling fan. You know, nobody stood out more to me as a young wrestling fan than Nick Bockwinkle. You know, nobody was more believable, more credible, and more real in my era. Uh, and, and, and again, this was back in the territory days before I could, you know, I didn't know what the NWA was because we didn't have it available in Minneapolis when I was a young, young kid watching wrestling. Oh, the only thing I knew was the AWA really. Um, but you know, Nick was one of my favorite characters, Vergania, one of my favorite characters, you know, the guys that were really believable, Ray Stevens, one of my favorite characters, um, so my taste is always skewed towards the more believable, more real. And clearly these characters that we're about to discuss, unfortunately in great detail again, are anything but that. But I didn't have enough confidence in my opinion or my observation at the time to you know, kind of draw a line in the sand. And I think going back to Steve and Hacksaw, I think I can only assume – uh, that the prevailing approach to creative at that time with the booking committee was let's kind of go for those characters who have proven in the past to draw money. And, you know, Jim Duggan was one of those characters, you know, as was Avalanche, as was a number of other cartoons, as was Honky Tonk Man. You know, these were all characters that were very, very successful and, and prominent at a period of time when the WWF was really exploding onto the scene and kind of redefining what professional wrestling was and, and drawing a lot of money in the process. So, I, again, not to beat it to death, but I think there was a tendency to kind of, well, that's what worked for them. So let's go back to that, thinking that you could kind of recreate it 
or or extend the life of it, so to speak. And clearly, it was you know, horribly wrong. We should mention um, this this match is going to go fifty eight seconds, and there's lots of speculation as to why it was short. But Meltzer wrote Austin blew out his knee two days prior on November fourteenth in Sarasota, and he was limping noticeably. Quote, for numerous reasons, there were many skeptics about the injury. Uh, lots of folks are going to probably jump to the conclusion that uh, Austin just didn't want to have a competitive match with Steve, uh, with uh, Jim Duggan and lose again. But at the same time, I guess if he really is injured, you need to keep it short and get him in and out of there. And if he really is injured, you don't know how long he'll be injured. So he can't necessarily go over. Do you remember there being some raised eyebrows about this injury just two days prior to the clash? I remember there was an injury and I, 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 and again, this is hard so long ago. Um, my recall was it might've been a tricep injury, Hmm. not a knee injury, but I could be wrong about that. I think he might be thinking of when he was in Japan and tore his arm Hmm. either way. Vader's going to charge the ring for the DQ and grab a uh, Duggan grabs the two by four makes his own save Meltzer would classify it as a really lame angle and gives it a dud. We should mention that several months later in 1995, they're going to have a tournament for the United States championship and Austin would finally beat Duggan by pin there. Um, and you know, Vader running in here is sort of tit for tat with what we talked about in the Dustin Rhodes match. That's going to set up. Uh, Vader and Duggan for the U.S. title at Starcade, where Vader would win the belt. Now let's get to our main event. But before we do, uh, I guess I should mention that we appreciate you guys listening to our show and supporting us on Westwood One. And we hope no matter where you're listening to us, that you're listening to us through Raycon's new wireless earbuds. I love mine so much so that my wife has stolen them. I didn't realize that until we were on our plane to Baltimore. I'm looking all through my bag for my Raycons. I can't find them. I look over to tell Megan she's got them in her ear. Uh, it's unbelievable. And I understand why she did it. It's because Raycon just released their best model yet. The brand new E 25s. They've got six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice noise. Isolating fit works great on the airplane and Raycon's wireless earbuds are so comfortable. They're perfect for you know, on the go listening or taking phone calls. I've loved mine. They've been my go-to for all of my travels, but the new E25s, man, they're the real deal. And they're half the price of the other premium wireless earbuds that I've used, but they sound just as amazing. And if you haven't bought a pair, well, today is your lucky day uh, because we're going to special offer for you. But before I tell you about that, I do want to say that some of your other wireless options, well, they're not so stylish. They're not so discreet. Uh, these things you can get however you like, no dangling wires, no stems. And you've heard me talk about all the celebrities that are using these things, whether it's Snoop Dogg or Cardi B or Melissa Etheridge or J.R. Smith. Everyone who tries a Raycon has been obsessed. Pick up a pair and see what the hype is all about right now. And it's time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. And you can even get 15% off just because you listen to this show. Go to buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks that's buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks and you'll get 15 percent off your brand new raycon wireless earbuds buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks and by the way it's b-u-y-r-a-y-c-o-n b-u-y-r-a-y-c-o-n.com 
I know you're loving yours. I know Lori's loving hers. These are probably some of the best earbuds I've ever used. They're the only earbuds I've I've ever used. I've tried other earbuds. I've sampled them, and I refuse to use them because they literally, you know, you know, it's there's. I've talked about this before. I've got just the slightest amount of cauliflower ear in my uh, right ear. And anytime I've tried to use an earbud within 20 minutes or a half an hour, it becomes almost painful. It's like a really bad bruise kind of feeling because they just don't fit properly. So I've never, ever had a pair of earbuds that I could use for more than 15 or 20 minutes until these earbuds showed up. And now the only problem I have with them is I forget that they're in. I literally, they, they weigh almost nothing. They fit so perfectly in, in your ear. They don't move around that after they're in for five or 10 minutes, I literally forget they're there. And um, I, I just can't say enough great things about them. And I know they're a sponsor and everybody thinks, oh, you're just putting them over because they're your sponsor. That's not true. Uh, certainly we're putting them over because they are a sponsor, but the, I believe in the product so much. And I'm not lying. I've never had a pair of earbuds that I could I could use for more than ten or fifteen minutes until these, and I can leave these in. Uh, you know, if I'm if I'm flying to Europe, you know, I'm getting ready to head to Qatar here uh, at the end of this month. I guarantee you, these babies are going to be in my bag because I can I can wear them all the way to Qatar. Boy, that's a story for another time. Uh, let's talk about our main event. I can't believe this is real life. We've got Mister T here. And this is 1994. <laughs> now in 85, Mr. T was a huge movie star. He's been on television with, I think everybody remembers the A-Team, which is a huge show. He was a starring role in, in Rocky three. He was a big part of the original WrestleMania. I mean, just really, really important stuff. A decade later, man, he's just in the fucking way of this match as our referee. And <laughs> we've got, we've got Hulk Hogan, the, the flag bearer for professional wrestling and certainly the WWF for the last decade. Now we've got sting who's been the franchise of WCW as his partner and their partner is going to be the former equalizer. Yeah. That really terrible <laughs> equalizer character. Now he is the kayfabe brother of Kevin Sullivan and he is a Hogan fanboy, and he's going to start spelling his name backwards. Evad. And this is Dave Sullivan. He's going to round out the six man and they're going to take on your close personal friend, Ed Leslie, <laughs> the butcher is his name here because he can't be Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. And oh, we can't be earthquake anymore. So we've got John Tenta in here as avalanche and unbelievably Kevin Sullivan rounds out the six man. This is just like booked on acid horseshit uh, that anybody came up with this and I don't know, man, it gets a star in a quarter, but it's an incoherent muddled up match. That's as polite as, as Meltzer can be when he's describing it to the point that when there, there needs to be a save <laughs> Brad and Brian Armstrong are the ones who make the save and Bagwell and Patriot, uh, and, and Dillinger and good goddamn Eric, this main event, I should have punched you in the nuts just preemptively this past weekend in Baltimore. This was awful. Hey. It's your father-in-law, dude. What are we going to punch me? Leave my nuts alone. They're freshly shaved, aero fucking dynamic, and he had nothing to do with this. <laughs> That's your father-in-law booked this shit. That's Ric Flair. I'm just kidding, Rick. I mean, this was this. This is a party. 
This is so much fun to go back and watch because it is so bad. It's awesome. Sometimes bad is just bad. Sometimes bad is eh, it's pretty bad. This is so bad. It's fucking classic. It is. It's just a uh, good God. The <laughs> I'm I'm in bed this morning, right? I got up about 445 this morning because I want to, you know, drink my coffee and be clear headed and you know, watch the show and go through the notes. I really, really wanted to be prepared. I actually felt bad last week because I, I didn't feel all that well. I didn't feel like I really did a great show. And it always, it bothers me. If I, if we, we lay down and record a show and I know I wasn't my best, I, I feel bad about it for a couple of days. And, and I didn't want that to happen this week because I was sick last week. I had food poisoning, or flu or whatever it is I had. It was just off. I was about 75 or 80%. So I thought, oh, man. And, you know, we were going to record last night, you know, this being Monday. We were going to record last night. And by the time I got home from Baltimore, because I drove, you know, it was like four and a half, five hours in traffic. And I was just, you know, I felt fine, but I was just brain dead. And you and I spoke and said, can we do this thing early in the morning? Because by then I'll be refreshed and have time to really adequately review the show and prepare and all that kind of stuff. So I got up super early this morning. I got the pot, pot of coffee going about 4.45, took the dog out. I'm laying in bed or sitting in bed, I should say, and drinking my coffee and I'm starting to watch the show and I'm going, oh, oh this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt. And then as I got to the end, Actually, it was before that because I, I some of the promos, like the earlier in the show, we didn't talk about it because the the butcher. And by the way, legally we could have call, called them Brutus the Barber Beefcake. WWE has never had that trademark, just for the record. But that's neither here nor there. Well, why didn't but, you? Well, why, why I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I mean, he's, he used, I, I used Brutus the Barber Beefcake in the Hulk Hogan Celebrity Championship Wrestling, and WWE threw a flag on that. We picked the flag back up, threw it back in her face, said, fuck you, we can do it if we want. He owns a trademark, not you. And I went, oh, yeah, you're right. Um, and that was back in whatever, 2004 or five, whatever. Yeah. Four, yeah, it was a while ago. Um, but earlier in the show, there was a promo with uh, Butcher, Sullivan, and Avalanche, and Again, I know I sound like a shill. Clearly, I'm not pushing this because I work with WWE because clearly I don't. But I still love the WWE Network for the opportunity to go back and look at some of this great WCW, you know, vintage classic type stuff, as well as a lot of other great classic wrestling from back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. But go back. Look at the Clash of the Champions, 29. Watch the whole thing, but pay particular attention to just how fucking horrific the promo is with the Butcher and Sullivan and, and Avalanche right following that horrific, um, what was it, the Honky Tonk Johnny B. Bad match or shortly thereafter. The, the, the promo is so bad, I thought, well, it could never get any worse, but it did. <laughs> Go back and look at the, you know, the Hogan Sting and David Sullivan, Evad, whatever, Jimmy Hart, you know, mugging in the background. The promo, you just got to watch it. You, it. It's so bad, it's classic. 
It's horrific. Yeah. This it's is... horrific. And then, and oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I got off track talking about how classic this thing is. See how I use the word classic now instead of horrific? It's so classic. But <clears throat> even more classic. And when I when I thought, okay, I'm laughing as hard as I was, I'm going to laugh this morning. I got to be careful. You know, I don't want to wake up the neighbors in this corporate housing I'm still sequestered in here in Stanford. Um, and then I see Mr. T come out with that fucking hat. Yeah. Like he's a goddamn pajama. Yeah. What was that? I'm asking you, what the hell Conrad? It's like, who a, came up with that shit? Hey, that's my line. I know, but I'm feeling it. It's uh, I'm, ho- I'm hoping you have an answer. Ask your father-in-law next time you see him, Rick flair. You're, you're Bob, with Bob. the greatest of all time, 16 time world heavyweight champion. You've been there. You've done that. You've been to the mountaintop and you are still a cultural icon to this day. Rick, why in the world would you have let Mr. T come out wearing that hat? I need to know the answer. Please call Rick and ask him. Uh, ladies and gentlemen in professional wrestling, what Eric just did is referred to as fading the heat. Uh, but you'll recall earlier in this very show, he admitted that Hulk Hogan had creative control over anything he did. And that meant his opponent Hogan didn't wear that hat. Yeah, but he allowed it brother. Uh, and Hogan's probably time world heavyweight champion, Ric Flair, let Mr. T come to the ring. wearing that hat. I don't know. I, I love and respect Ric Flair. I, I just, I don't know how he let that happen. In fairness, <laughs> I don't remember seeing Flair running around in bandanas very much, but this looked like, uh, what's that old Christmas Carol thing about, uh, the Grinch and mom and her kerchief the, the, he's got on a fucking Christmas hat here. Like, uh, like it's unbelievable. You've got to go it, back and watch just how bad this is. This is what botchamania exists for. It is so honest to God, though, if you're, if it is funny, I mean, that hat alone is worth going back and that seeing Mr. T come out in that hat as a referee is worth the price of the WWE network for an entire year. Well, listen, the wrestling observer reader poll agreed with us. This thing got 5.3% thumbs in the middle, 7.4% thumbs up. 87.4% 87.4% thumbs down, but thankfully at the end of this, you're, uh, you're really on the right track because star K 94 is going to be all about Hulk Hogan and the butcher. That's right. Hulk Hogan and Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake are going to headline Starcade somewhere. Harley race and Ric Flair were rolling over in their graves and they weren't even dead. And again, uh, you know, I encourage people to go back and look at this horrible, promo with butcher and kevin sullivan and and avalanche um listen to the ed leslie butcher brutus the barber beefcake whatever listen to his promo i was actually going to impersonate it it was so bad that i was going to impersonate it on the show but i i i can't Look, I can make fun of myself. I, I, I can. I have self-deprecating humor. I, I can laugh at some of the silly shit that I've done and all that. I have no problem. I cannot lower myself low enough to to imitate this promo. That's how bad it is. It is just. It is a parody of a parody of a bad parody of a bad promo. That's how bad it is. Go check it out. 
clash of the champions 29. We're going to put a bow on this one today. And uh, next week we'll be back with something else I get to grill about. It's uh, world war three, the very first one from 1995 and went down on November 26th at the Norfolk scope. Unbelievably, there's like 12,000 people there to see Johnny B. bad and diamond Dallas page for the world television championship and the managerial services of diamond doll. We'll also have big Bubba Rogers and Jim Duggan in a tape fist match that, you know, it's going to be a barn burner. Bull Nakano and Akira Hokuto are going to take on Mayumi Ozaki and Cutie Suzuki. Next, we've got Kensuke Sasaki taking on Chris Benoit for the U.S. Heavyweight Championship. We'll also have Lex Luger and Randy Savage in a singles match. And then Sting and Ric Flair in a singles match. But then the main event, it's a 60-man, three-ring battle royal, World War Three for the vacant World Heavyweight Championship. And Randy Savage and his first big WCW match is going to come away as your new world champion. We'll recap the good, the bad, and the ugly next week. We're here on 83 weeks. We apologize for the delay. Still trying to get it out as soon as we can this Monday. We'll be on time next week and look forward to, uh, covering world war three, 1995. Are you ready for next week, man? Two bad shows back to back. I'm going to start drinking now. I'll be ready for you by, by Sunday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting our sponsors. Hit the subscribe button. Leave us a five-star review if you think we've earned it. Tell a friend, and we'll be back with you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.